Father, we ask for soft hearts and attentive minds as we look to your word together this morning. We thank you that you've given us instruction in, in every area of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that more than anything, uh, that your Son would be honored and exalted and lifted up uh, through, um, Lord, your word today, and that um, you would give us a greater understanding of, of marriage and how it will honor Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, by God's providence, uh, uh, I am here this morning, and just as things worked out, and, and uh, one thing that, so when we started this series on uh, marriage back in, in Colossians, the uh, last couple months ago, uh, I've been very burdened for our marriages. I, uh, I spent many times in my 20 plus years in the ministry uh, counseling married couples or counseling individuals who are married with struggles in their marriage. This is one of the predominant uh, issues that I've seen in terms of the challenges that, that we face. And I'm just burdened that, that our marriages are... Uh, I just know how hard that is. I'm married, and it's not easy at times. Even when uh, things seem to be going well, and, and two people who are wanting to follow Christ, it's still a challenge, let alone when you have those times when one or both people are not wanting to follow Christ. We all have difficulties and challenges in marriage. I spent a couple of weeks ago talking about conflict in marriage, and this morning I want to broaden out the, the topic a little bit and talk about God's purpose for marriage. Talk about why he designed marriage. What was his reasons? What were his reasons? For he made marriage to really be the fabric and design on the quilt of human existence. It was Winston Churchill who said, My most brilliant achievement was my ability to persuade my wife to marry me. And actually he was serious when he said that. Which is remarkable to think about because of all the great accomplishments Winston Churchill achieved in his lifetime, he genuinely, truly felt like convincing Clementine, his wife, to marry him was the top of the list. And knowing him, you probably might agree with that. But he and his wife, at the time of Churchill's death, was he was 50, uh, they had been married 56 years. It's quite amazing. And while 56 years is a long time, I read about a couple, uh, Karam, Karam and Katari Chand, who, get this, uh, this December before last had been married. They celebrated their 90th wedding anniversary. That's not that they made it to 90 years old. They've been married 90 years. He died just a couple of months ago, just shy of their 91st wedding anniversary. Unbelievable. And they appeared to be happily married. That picture of their 90th, they were both smiling, sitting close to each other. And that's what we all want, isn't it? When we stand up, face-to-face with each other, and she's in that beautiful dress, and he's in that tuxedo or suit, and they make those vows to one another. And and in that moment, there's the desire for this long-lasting and joyful and and pleasing marriage, right? Something we all want when we get married. But see, marriage, even though it can bring much joy and happiness, there's the other side of that, right? There's also pain and sorrow, challenges and difficulties that come in marriage, when you bring two people together, any relationship, but especially in marriage, you're, you're bringing two sinners in close proximity to one another. What do you think's going to happen? Even as believers, right? We struggle 
with sin. But both people come together. They have expectations. Not all of them necessarily on God's, in God's priorities. Both are prone to their own needs, their own wants, their own desires. And if we're all honest with one, each other, when we come to marriage, it's often, often what we can get out of it. Right? We may not say it that way, but how we behave in the midst of marriage, when things don't go the way you want them to, when your expectations are not met, when your spouse does something against you, offends you, sins against you, we put on display that, well, hey, wait a minute, this marriage is about me. How could you do that? And that just betrays that we often come to this particular relationship with our own agendas. And again, even as believers, we're not immune to problems. Though we may be Christians, we too can struggle in our marriages at times. Perhaps some of you are in the midst of one now or have in the recent past. Brothers and sisters, I just want to exhort, encourage you this morning to be vigilant, to be alert, to be sober, to be uh, fervent in giving attention to our marriages. Satan is on the attack, right? He's assaulted marriage from the very beginning. He got between the first husband and wife, didn't he? Right? He has declared war upon marriage all over the world, and especially in our own country. In the last decade, we have witnessed an all-out assault by the evil one against marriage. Marriage as God has designed it. And I'm not just talking about Gay marriage, though that has hit our culture with a vengeance in these last few years. Satan has attacked it in many other ways. More couples are living together outside of wedlock than ever before. Pornography is at an all-time high. Adultery, premarital sex is running rampant. There are more open marriages, if you know what I mean by that, than ever before. Reality TV shows are on display that that glorify polygamy. Satan has managed to saturate our culture with this, and he's even pushed it into the church. And if he can't get you in these overt ways, he has other methods. If he can't entice you by immorality, then he will attack your marriage in other ways. Listen, just staying married doesn't mean you're living out of marriage as God designed it, right? Just being together, that that doesn't say a whole lot. It's something, but it's not everything. Just because you're not given in to the, quote, big sins in your marriage doesn't mean your marriage is where God wants it to be. Am I right about this? So in the midst of this onslaught against marriage, how do we survive? How do we deal with the challenges that we face? How do we have a long-lasting marriage? How do we have a marriage that we enjoy? And more than that, how do we have a marriage that's an example to our children? And and more than that, how do we have a marriage that is a testimony to the world? And more than that, how can we have a marriage that pleases God? In the end, that's really what matters. And it comes down to this. First, it is by understanding why God designed marriage. He created it, right? 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 wasn't some philosopher way back in human history that realized, you know what, to, to strengthen the society and the structure of our culture, we need to have a, this thing called marriage. This wasn't designed by any human being. Marriage was given by the Creator Himself on the sixth day of creation, right at the beginning. 
Why did God create it? What was in his mind when he brought Adam and Eve together to be one? Well, these are the things I want us to talk about this morning. Back when Moses you know, first wrote those words, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What, what did God mean by one flesh? And what was the purpose of that one flesh relationship? Well, to answer these questions, we need to turn to the, the most complete passage on marriage in Scripture, in Ephesians chapter 5. If you could turn to Ephesians chapter 5, I know it's a passage familiar to many, but I want to look at the, this text as a whole and glean a very important principle from it that Paul is emphasizing. And as we're looking at marriage, I, I recognize there are many in here who are not married. I understand that. So don't tune me out. Not only because uh, the Word of God it, it applies to all of us in, in many ways, but, but we're all one body, Right? Right? You're with me this morning, right? We're all one body. And as we've seen in several passages in Scripture, God doesn't segment it to, okay, these are the single and these are the married. So I'm going to talk to the married today. Just you guys, you know, just you do whatever you want. It isn't, okay, these are older, these are younger. These are male and female. There's not separation and distinction like that in terms of the importance of the Word of God. We all need to understand what God has to say to all of us. And then towards the end, there are some specific applications that I will encourage you with as an unmarried person. So, please stay with me. Paul shows us here in this text in Ephesians 5 that the goal of marriage is just so much more than just staying together. It's so much more than just staying together and not fighting. God created marriage far more for a reason far greater than just simply populating the earth. God has much to teach us through this unique and special relationship. He has much to teach us about His Son in this unique and special relationship. Here in Ephesians 5, we're, we're going to see Paul is appealing back the curtain and giving us a greater insight and greater depth as to why marriage exists, why God made marriage. And if we can just catch a glimpse behind that curtain as it's peeled back, look carefully, and it will help to change and transform your marriage. So let's take a look behind that curtain, beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Here Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Well, here in these 12 verses, uh, 190 words in the original Greek text, and I, I mention that because this is the longest passage we have on marriage Anywhere in the scripture. And as we look at this passage today, 
I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that the instruction that God gives here and the insights that he gives here, he doesn't give us commands or instructions that he doesn't empower us to live out. It's the very same spirit who inspired this text, this passage, is the one who also empowers believers of the Lord Jesus Christ to live it out. And if you're struggling in your marriage, help is coming. It's right here. For as you better understand and apply what Paul is saying, you will experience marriage as God intended, even if your spouse is not on board. To experience marriage as God intended, again, we must first have a right understanding of its purpose. And there are several reasons God made marriage and designed it that way. We're going to focus on the primary reason. We're going to focus on the most important one, the key, the foundation to the whole thing. And it is ultimately this. God designed marriage for Christ. Okay, we're done. So hopefully that was helpful insight. And that's it, that's it. That's the thesis statement. That's the main point. That's the proposition that Paul is giving. Marriage is for Christ. He made marriage for Jesus. And we'll see this in three ways this morning. We'll see this in the focus of marriage, in the mystery of marriage, and then the application in marriage. Let's first look at the focus of marriage And the focus is to glorify Christ. Glorifying Him is where everything ends and begins, right? To express our total love and and honor and gratitude and worship and praise. That's why we exist. Paul said in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Glory of God in Christ, that is what life is all about. We can't be reminded enough in regards to marriage that the main reason to marry is not for love. It's not for security. It's not for stability. It's not for a relationship. The main reason is not for children. It's not for happiness. It's not for Fill in the blank. The main reason for marriage, the primary reason is to honor Christ, to exalt Him, to lift Him up. To put the world's attention on Him. God has specifically designed marriage to do that. We'll see why as we look at the text. This truth is woven throughout all of Paul's instruction here in Ephesians 5, to 33. In fact, did you notice how many times Jesus and His bride are referred to here? Jesus and the church. Husbands and wives, they're mentioned ten times each, if you also include the pronouns that are connected to them. But Jesus and the church are referred to here twelve times each. So in a passage that's on marriage, Christ and the church receive 20% more attention than husbands and wives. Why would Paul do that? Why so much focus on Jesus when he's giving instruction on human marriage, right? He begins the passage talking to wives and then he goes on to talk to husbands. This is a passage directed to married people, right? You're still with me, right? When I say right with a question mark, just just give me some feedback. Thank you. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us this, that, that in the end, marriage is more about Jesus than it is about us. In fact, it is all about Jesus. He is at the center. It revolves around Him. Colossians 3, 4 says, Christ is our life. 
And if we're to have a fulfilling, God-honoring marriage, and it has to be about Jesus, bottom line, Sunday school answer. Paul communicates this here, not only in the frequency with which he mentions Christ and the church, but also what he says about Jesus. Look back at verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The Lord refers to Christ here. Paul is saying that wives are to see the authority that their husbands have as from Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Again, Christ is in view here. He is the reason to submit. He is the one ultimately that you are submitting to. He reinforces the point in verse 24 when he says, as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives to their husbands. And then to husbands, he says in verse 25, love your wives how? What's the reference point, men? Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then again in verse 29, husbands are to nourish and care for and tenderly uh, to love and provide for their wives. How? Just as Christ does the church. So you see, there's an emphasis here in this text. As to the Lord, just as Christ loved, just as Christ does that's the emphasis and that's the focus. These phrases are, are telling us that marriage is all about Jesus. He is the standard of how we treat our spouse. He is the one who we need to be most concerned about pleasing. Jesus is the one that we answer to. His opinion is the most important opinion. His reputation is what matters most. His honor must be our greatest concern. So ladies, submission and respect for your husband is not because your husband deserves it. I hear an amen, women. They're afraid to say anything. Right? It's not because they deserve it. It's because Jesus has given that instruction and the church is to submit to him, right? And men, you're to love your wife not because she deserves it. You don't get to say amen, all right? Right? You're to love your wife not because she deserves it, but because Jesus loves his. See, the purpose of marriage is not all about you, not all about us. It's not about getting what you want out of that relationship. Rather, it exists for putting Jesus on the display and what he wants to see out of that relationship. And sometimes that means this. That means things are not going to go how you want them to go. Sometimes that means that you will be sinned against by your spouse, maybe in terrible ways. Sometimes that means that your spouse will be unkind, unloving, bitter, selfish, angry, perhaps unfaithful. But listen, in those moments, you need to remember this. This is so important. You need to remember that Jesus can be glorified even in the midst of that. If you respond rightly, even when your spouse does not. In those moments when you are tempted to lash out in anger, when you are tempted to be bitter, when you are tempted to be unfaithful, when you are tempted to whatever the sin might be, in those moments, if you remember, my marriage is for Jesus, not for me, you'll be lifting him up. Paul said, right, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He said in Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is... Christ and to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, you must have the firm conviction that you exist for His glory. 
I mean, without Jesus, where would we be? Where would we be? We know this life is not forever. We know that we're only given 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Or the, the Chans had, I think, 110 years. And then that, that was it. And then there's eternity, right? Where would we be in eternity without him? You know the answer to that. So we must have the firm conviction. We exist for his glory and his satisfaction. To please him. And if you can embrace that your primary goal in marriage is to please Jesus. And beloved, listen to me. This is what will make you sacrifice when it is hard. This is what will give you the strength and power to forgive. This is what will keep you going even in the hard times. This is what will, will stop you from repaying evil for evil. When you remember and remind yourself, it's not about me, it's about him. Because you know what? In the end, you need to be pursuing this in your marriage. It's not for yourself. It's not for your spouse. It's not for your children if you have them. It's not for your grandchildren. In the end, you need to be doing it for Jesus. Again, you don't know what's going to happen in your marriage. There are no guarantees. When you said, I do, you could not have anticipated what would happen in your marriage. Some of you have experienced some very, very, very hard things that you would have never imagined on that day you got married. And for some, they may be ahead of you. Your spouse may end up struggling with depression or anger or bitterness or drugs or infidelity. In your marriage, you may have to deal with things like bad health. Your spouse may develop some ongoing chronic condition. I know several Brothers and sisters whose spouses are bedridden early in their marriage. Dear couple, his wife developed paralysis. They'd been married just a couple of years. They were in their 20s. Permanent life condition. You may have disobedient children in the midst of your marriage. Major trials. These things come up. Again, there are no guarantees. And the only way to not only survive that, but even to grow and thrive in the midst of these things is if Christ is your chief pursuit. You're not going to find strength or encouragement or help anywhere else. The bottle, the powder, the other relationship, those aren't going to give you satisfaction that you're looking for in your marriage. Only Jesus will. Again, marriage is all about him. The focus of marriage is to glorify Christ. Second point I want us to consider and look at from the text here is the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage is to reflect Christ. The end of Paul's instruction on marriage here, I mentioned earlier about the curtain that he peels back. Well, here at the end of chapter 5 is where he draws back this curtain and he reveals something incredibly profound. Up through verse 30, things seem pretty clear. Paul is... Referring to Christ as the church is an apparent illustration for the husband and wife. Verses 28 to 32, he then describes how the husband is to, to treat his wife, recognizing that they are one, that she is part of him. Paul says that husbands need to care for their wives just as Christ cares for his bride. And he says in verse 30, we need to do this because we're a member of Christ's body, the church. And this makes sense. You know, he's talking about us as one body, as an illustration that husband and wife are one flesh. There's an analogy there in some ways. 
So he's saying, husbands, you need to do this for your bride. You need to follow the example of how Christ treats his bride. You two are one flesh, you're one body. And then he says this in verse 31. Take a look there again. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife. The two become one flesh. This is a quote, right? Right? There's that clue. Okay, good. Getting better. This is a quote from Genesis 2.24, right? Moses' statement on marriage, when the first man and woman are brought together and are married, Moses makes a declaration. Man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So the theological summary of the first wedding ceremony. And when Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 here in Ephesians 5, it seems to make sense what he's doing, right? He's just been talking about a husband and how he's to treat his wife because they are one body. And so this seems to make sense that Paul would then include this verse. The husband should love his wife, considering the special union they share. So it seems, verse 31, Paul's just applying Genesis 2.24 to bring the point home, right? Thank you. But on this one, is he? Is he doing that? Paul throws a wrench into this very idea. The very next verse, look in verse 32, he says this. This is a profound mystery. What is a profound mystery? Wait a minute, Paul. What are you talking about? How is marriage a profound mystery? We've known about it since the very beginning when Moses talked about it. Marriage isn't a mystery. In fact, that's what, marriage is what Moses was talking about when Adam and Eve came together. So what do you mean, Paul? What are you talking about? You're saying this mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What is that about? Moses wasn't talking about the church there back in Genesis 2.24. He was talking about human relationship, about human marriage. In fact, the church is nowhere seen in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. That word in the New Testament means something that could not be discovered without God revealing it. Go back to Ephesians 3.3 if you want an example of that. So Paul says here that, that there's something that's a mystery regarding marriage. That's how he ends this marriage text or close to the end. So Paul, are you playing fast and loose with your hermeneutics here? What are you doing? Are you reading something into Genesis 2 that wasn't there? So does Ephesians 5.31 refer to human marriage or does it refer to the union of Christ and the church? Yes. The answer is yes. And herein lies the mystery. It's a profound mystery. It is something that is not even conceived or imagined by any human being before the cross. And the mystery that Paul's referring to is this. When he's talking about marriage... He says, ultimately, it is the relationship between Christ and the church that marriage is pointing to. See, the mystery has to do with the fact that Christ and the church is not an illustration of marriage. It's the other way around. The connection between human marriage and the relationship of Christ and the church, that, that marriage is, is given here as a, it's the, the, is the reason for marriage is the relationship between Christ and the and his church. It's God's ultimate purpose for marriage. Paul is again saying here that Christ and his bride are more than an illustration of marriage. It's the other way around. Marriage is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his bride. This mystery, this thing unknown, this unexplained reality, Genesis 2.24, is that God did not create 
the union of Christ and his church after the pattern of human marriage. He created human marriage after the pattern of the relationship between Christ and his church. That's why Paul says this is a great mystery. It's profound. It's a mind blower, if you'd use our vernacular. It's like he's saying, look, this will blow your mind. I'm not talking here about man and woman. I'm talking here about Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, this this is the wonder of it all. Husbands, wives, you realize on that sixth day of creation that God was looking far beyond this unique relationship, the special relationship between a man and a woman. He had a more profound purpose. John Piper put it this way. Marriage is like a metaphor or an image or a picture that stands for something more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the deepest meaning of marriage. It's meant to be a living drama of of how Christ and the church relate to each other. This tells us something very important. This tells us that way back when God brought Adam and Eve together, in the garden, when, when he presided over that first wedding ceremony, when he ordained that one man and one woman come together in this unique human relationship referred to as a one flesh relationship, that when God made human marriage, he was looking ahead to the cross. He was looking ahead to Pentecost. He was looking ahead to the marriage supper. He was looking ahead to the relationship between his son and his bride. Think about that. He was looking to Christ's own eternal marriage with his church. The mystery is great indeed. For we learn that marriage finds its meaning, its identity, its purpose, its significance, its importance. We find that it it finds all of that in Christ's relationship with his bride. You see, Paul wasn't showing us in Ephesians 5 how Christ and the church represented marriage, but how marriage represents Christ and the church. Marriage is the copy, it is the shadow, it is the illustration of a more important relationship, an eternal relationship. Right? Marriage, human marriage isn't eternal, right? You know that. It's temporary, right? Have I said that yet? Sometimes when you do two services, you don't remember what you said when. If I did, I'm just going to repeat myself. Right? It's temporary. Some of you might be going, oh, I'm glad of that. But for some, right, it's bittersweet. See, that relationship is going to end. Jesus said that uh, there's no marriage in heaven. Because there is a greater, eternal, more important relationship and marriage between Jesus and his bride. One that's eternal. That's the ultimate relationship, brothers and sisters. Human marriage is just a picture of that. It's supposed to be. That's what's so profound here. God made marriage so that we would have a picture of a much greater, more lofty relationship. The only eternal relationship, Jesus and his bride. And marriage is is meant to show us and to help us understand that relationship. Marriage is not an end in itself. It, It points to a greater end. And yet so few understand this. So few in the church realize this. So few who are married as Christians have thought about this. That their marriage is a picture of something more profound. 
That it has a purpose in something much greater than just whether they get along or not and how they raise their children and what they do in this life. Those are important things. But that's not the end for which God designed marriage. Now, at this point, perhaps some are thinking, okay, this is interesting. I think I understand what you're saying, but, but how does this help my marriage? How does this help me stop arguing with my spouse? How does this help me grow closer with my husband or with my wife? How does this help me as a, as a grandparent? How does this help me as, in my relationship to my brothers and sisters who are married? Listen, the better you understand just how connected Jesus is to his church, to you if you're a believer, then the more that you will understand and be motivated to have a marriage that honors Christ. As you focus on how Jesus considers his bride, on how he feels about her, his commitment to her, his loyalty to her, or how his bride is to respond to him, how she is to feel about him, how she is to view and look at him and consider him. As you consider the sacrifice and the commitment and the loyalty, as you better understand these truths, you will be motivated to live them out in your marriage. That's what Paul has been getting at all along here. Husbands, treat your wife like Christ treats his, because that's what you're supposed to be showing. Wives, treat your husbands as the church is to treat hers. This is why gender matters, by the way. In our culture's conversation. We'll talk about that in a minute. Again, your marriage is to be a picture. It's to point to Christ. It's to point to his bride. It's to reflect him. Your marriage is, uh, I forgot who said this, but it's a living parable. It's to be a living parable to your children, to your extended family, to your neighbors, to the world, of how Jesus cares for his bride and how she cares for him the end of the day marriage is a picture of the gospel it really is as you love your spouse unconditionally christ's unconditional love is put on display in the world as you forgive your spouse's sins against you the beauty and grace of christ's forgiveness is revealed and seen as you ladies show this respectful submission and men, as you show this loving, sacrificial leadership, as that's seen in the home, following Jesus is made more desirable to the world because they're given an image of what that looks like. Brothers and sisters, we have a privilege here to make the gospel attractive. What an honor. You know, and I've, I've seen that just in in our marriage and its impact on unbelievers in our family. Imagine how an Olympic athlete feels, the one that's chosen to carry the flag. Right? What an honor. What a privilege, right? How humbling that must be. As they come into the, the Olympic Stadium, tens of thousands of people, and they're the one in front leading their countrymen ahead, holding the flag of their nation. What an honor and a privilege. And to think Jesus is allowing us to carry his flag in marriage. To go before the world. Say, look at him. Your marriage is to represent him and his relationship to the church. Now I want to take a brief rabbit trail here. I think it's important. We need to talk about how this relates to our culture. Right, as I mentioned earlier, there's been an onslaught. Regarding marriage in our society, 
And we're doing an excellent job of importing it around the world. I go around, it's amazing to me. Um, I'm in the Philippines, I'm in Kenya this last year, Malawi. Every single country that has held a certain uh, biblical conservative position on marriage, that's being challenged now at the highest levels of government. Laws are being just like here. And guess who's encouraging that activity? Our culture is. What we've seen here in Ephesians 5 is God's plan for marriage, that it is for Christ. It was designed to be a living illustration, right? This is why polygamy is so wrong. This is why living together unmarried is so wrong. This is why adultery is so wrong. This is why fornication is so wrong. This is why gay marriage is so wrong. Because it mars that picture. It goes against the very purpose for which marriage is created. So, so much, and I hear, let me speak specifically regarding um, gay marriage, is it's not whether it goes against nature or whether it historically is something that has not been done or how it could undermine the purpose and intent in marriage and, and propagating society and all those things. There may be some truths to those arguments, but that's not the main problem. See, the whole purpose of marriage is the issue. It's counter to why God made marriage at all. If you have two men or, or two women who are, who are living as married, that opposes it. it. It mars, it blackens the whole picture of why God designed marriage. Marriage is to reflect what? Christ and his bride, right? But it isn't Jesus and another Jesus. It isn't church, two churches being brought together. Again, this is why gender identity is so important. Or think about a person who is an ongoing intimacy with another person who is not their spouse. Or even one time. That stains the image. That's to take this beautiful portrait that God has painted of his son and his bride. And it is to take markers. It is to take spray painting. Two people having sex outside marriage. Living together. This cheapens the commitment. Jesus would never do that. Jesus would never step out on his bride. Jesus would never make a promise and break it. And if our marriage is supposed to picture that and reflect that. See where I'm going? But see, beloved, we need to make a stand on these things. And not just declare them as wrong because they're wrong, because the Bible says they're wrong. That, that is true. We must also declare and explain why they are wrong from God's point of view. Polygamy, adultery, same-sex marriage, premarital sex, living together. These attack the whole purpose and design of marriage, that marriage is for Christ. And I so often, I don't hear that anymore in the discussion. It's almost like we're saying, well, you can't bring Jesus or the Bible in this conversation because people are going to laugh. People are going to think you're crazy. Well, we are crazy. We're fools, Paul said. We preach a foolish message. You mean to tell me if I put my trust in this this man who actually is the son of God and became man and died on a cross, if I put my trust in him and commit my life to follow him and repent of my sins that... That I'm forgiven and I go to heaven and I have a relationship with him forever? You're nuts! Right? So, 
Don't let that be an inhibitor to you to bring. This is the whole reason why same-sex marriage is something we need to talk about. We need to bring to the forefront. Wait a minute. No human made marriage. No philosopher. No, no very smart man in the past. God made it. And this is why he made it. And this is why we can't do this. It attacks the very purpose. It blasphemes his son. Right? I'm sorry. I got worked up. <laughs> but that's, that's my own heart right there. I weep for this culture. It was so twisted around. And we've made the conversation about civil rights. And they've won the argument on a human level. But that's not where the argument needs to be. What did God design marriage to be? That's what we need to say. Whether it's accepted or not does not matter. That's up to the Holy Spirit to do His work through His Word. I could go on for a while here, but I'm not angry, I'm not upset, I'm just, I'm burdened. Polygamy, adultery, same-sex marriage, premarital sex, again, this all mars the image. Marriage is about Christ, it's for Christ, it's to lift Christ up, and that's why this matters. Okay, the, the first point we looked at this morning was the focus of marriage. It's to glorify Christ. And we've just been talking about the mystery of marriage, which is to reflect Christ. Let me just spend a few moments on the third point, the application in marriage, which is to live as Christ. And here, I just want to give you a few thoughts um, as we consider some implications of this amazing truth, this profound truth. That marriage is for Christ. That, that marriage is to, meant to reflect the image of His relationship to His bride. That, that marriage was designed to help us better understand Christ's bond with us, His church. Now for some here though, you need to address something that's more fundamentally important than your marriage. Now for some of you, having a marriage that is for Christ is not really a possibility because you don't know Him personally. You're not one of his. So you have a bigger problem. You have a much greater concern. Again, you could have a a wonderful marriage. Best marriage ever. But if you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, your relationship with him, which is eternal, is a problem. If you've not yet confessed your sin to him, if you've not yet genuinely sought his forgiveness, if you have not yet declared that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, have mercy on me. If you've not recognized that, that you stand before a holy God condemned because of your sin and, and rightly have the judgment of hell hanging over you, if you, if you have not embraced those things and recognized those things and pled out to God, forgive me, have mercy. If you've not done that, if you've not made a commitment, a desire to turn from your sin and follow Christ and put your trust in Him, then do it now. Do it now. Don't wait for another moment. Come. Didn't Jesus say that? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to Christ when he can be found. Come to Christ so that your sins can be cast away into the ocean of forgiveness and buried deep within, never to come up again. Come to him now, to a Savior who bled out on a cross to suffer a punishment that if you put your trust in Him, you don't have to. 
Come to Jesus now. Give your life to him. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the simple, foolish message that we have, but it is the only one that is true. And it's the only one that speaks not only to this life, but to the next. Our dear brother Dwayne is with his Lord now because he believed that message. And I know he enjoyed his marriage to you. But he's enjoying the relationship much greater now. And he's waiting. As you've seen from the Bible this morning, marriage was designed to point us to Jesus. Really everything. Marriage is designed to point us to his son. That's what life is all about. It's about knowing and loving him. But until your sin is dealt with, until it is washed away, until it is forgiven by his son... You cannot have a relationship with him. So don't worry about your marriage right now. Worry about your soul. Then worry about your marriage after that. Let me turn my attention to another group of people. I mentioned you earlier this morning at the beginning of the message. Those of you who are not married, perhaps you're wondering, well, how does this stuff about marriage apply to me how if marriage is for christ i'm not married how then can i (laughs) exalt him through it and it's more than just you need to hear what god's saying to the married people here do you realize those of you are single do you realize that you can exalt christ not being married you can exalt marriage even though you're not married hebrews 13 4 says this Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Very interesting passage. It's addressed not just to married people. It's addressed to both. Notice the author says here, he's talking about marriage. He talks about the marriage bed and it being undefiled. But but the marriage bed can be defiled by whether you're married or not. He says, adulterers, who are adulterers? Those committing immorality who are married, having sex with someone other than their spouse, and fornicators, which also has to do with sexual immorality. And in this context, because he's mentioned adulterers, he's talking there to people who aren't married. So he is saying here, listen, you can magnify marriage as the glory of Christ if you work at remaining pure. Whether single or married. Your your commitment to purity is a statement of the importance and exaltation and purity of marriage and the relationship between Christ and his bride. You lift up marriage even though you're not married in a profound way. Because our culture is completely the opposite of that, isn't it? Marriage is honored just as much by a married person staying pure in their marriage as an unmarried person staying pure, even though not married. Secondly, to you who are single, you can lift up marriage by ministering your gifts in the body of Christ, by coming alongside your married brothers and sisters. 
in the Lord, exercising your gifts, living out to one another, praying for those who are married and the, the struggles that they encounter, fellowshipping with them, being part of the spiritual family. We're one body again, right? Right? And now that you understand the purpose of marriage, you can come alongside those who are married and help. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, right? Paul speaks to those who are single and says, you can have a greater impact in the body life of the church because you're more freed up to do that. Thirdly, as a single person, you can show that marriage is for Christ by speaking highly of marriage. Instead of saying, well, was me, I can't find a spouse. You can say, praise God for marriage and praise God for that picture. And I'm so thankful that I have brothers and sisters who have the opportunity to lift Jesus up by how they treat their spouse. You can make a stand for the, the purpose of marriage in your job and in your community. And our culture, boy, bring this issue up. You now have an immediate avenue into the gospel. Give your opinion or view on particular issues in regards to sexuality in our culture. You now have an immediate platform. To those of you who are married, who are followers of the Lord Jesus, let me, let me say this. If you want to have a God-honoring, long-lasting, enjoyable, uh, fulfilling marriage, you, you, there's two things I want to say to you. First, you must continually remind yourself of the purpose of marriage. You must preach to yourself why God designed marriage. Marriage is for Christ. It's focused on to glorify Christ. It's to reflect the mystery of Christ and the relationship of Christ and His church. That's the first thing you need to do. And then the second one is this. And it's what I call, you know, dealing with what I call the, the monarch complex that's in your home. It's in every home. The monarch complex is what happens when you forget about who really is in charge in your home. The monarch complex is the attitude that says, I am the king. My home, my spouse exists for my benefit. My house revolves around me. What I want should happen. What I desire should take place. Paul Tripp, the great counselor, he points this out. He describes it this way. He says, we all have three kings in our homes. Those of you who are married. We have you. Your spouse and Jesus. But there can only be one king, right? That's how it works. So you need to make a conscious decision every day. Is Jesus going to be king in this household or am I going to try? Is my marriage really about him? And how you answer this will determine whether or not you have a marriage that's fulfilling its purpose to honor Christ. Reminding yourself of this, that marriage is for Christ, that your marriage is meant to reflect his relationship with his bride. That This is the glue that will keep your marriages together. This is the truth that will keep you faithful to one another. This is what will move you to remain committed to one another. This is what will remind you that, that I'm not the king, my spouse isn't the king, Jesus is the king here in this home. This will empower you to keep the covenant you made before God. What is it that Jesus said? What God has joined together, let no, no man separate. We need to keep our promise. We made a commitment. Listen to this. When you said, I do, you made a commitment, not just to, to stay married, but you made a commitment that you would have a marriage that, that pursues being a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride. 
Sometimes I have couples that I've counseled and they're just going through a lot of struggles. And I, I just, I kind of stop and I say, you know what, why don't you two just get divorced? And I say it with a serious tone. And they look at me like their eyes, what are you talking about? I thought you were a pastor. You're not supposed to say that. I said, well, what, what makes you think the fact you guys are together and continually doing these things, what makes you think that's any better in God's eyes? Had people say, yeah, we're, we're doing this, all these things, and I won't mention all the things that, that have happened, but, but we're still married. Well, good, I mean, good, but it's so much more than that. Our marriages were designed to, that the world would see Jesus lifted up through them. I heard of a couple who were at a, a restaurant. They were talking about their 50th wedding anniversary that was coming up. And the waitress overheard uh, them talking about that as she was taking her order. And, and so she, she says to the couple, she says, Excuse me, I, I overheard you talking about your 50th wedding anniversary. And I, I'm just amazed. I can't imagine being married to the same person for 50 years. And that's when the wife said this. She says, well, dear, don't get married until you can imagine that. That's good advice. And to that, I would, I would just add this. Don't get married as well until you understand why God made marriage. What will keep your marriage as God designed it is that you understand that your marriage is for Christ and it's about Christ. Amen? Let's pray. This is a profound mystery. Father, that you designed marriage to be a really a picture of, of your son and, and his bride. Oh, I pray, make that that image, that truth, impress that in our minds and hearts. All of us, Lord, whether married or single, young or old, that this is what marriage is for. And Lord, show us ways that we can promote that that picture, that illustration, things that we need to do in our own lives as, as husbands and as wives. You've given us a specific instruction here in Ephesians 5 how to do that. Oh, Oh, Father, move in our hearts by your Spirit. Just bring uh, conviction where needed. Bring encouragement and help where needed. Lord, I know many here are just in, in difficult times in their marriage. Lord, comfort those, the hearts of those who have lost their loved one. I know messages like this can be particularly hard to hear. Pray, God, that you would just comfort them and, and encourage and strengthen them to to exalt marriage, even in the situation they are in now. Lord, may all of us exalt marriage in our pursuing and pursuit of purity, that none of us would defile the marriage bed, whether we're single or not. Lord, I pray for marriages at this church. Lord, please transform us, change us, move us so that Christ is lifted up here so that people, as they look into our homes, they see an image of of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.